Hey, it's Sarah and Kristen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Into the Wee Hours podcast. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and sea where this podcast is being recorded, the land of the Gubby Gubby people of the Sunshine Coast. We pay respect to their elders past, present and those emerging. Like in previous episodes, we have mentioned we have started a Patreon account. It's pretty easy to find. We're online at patreon.com forward slash into the wee hours podcast. As much as we're doing this for fun, podcasting certainly doesn't come without its own one-off and monthly costs, especially now that we've bought some fancy gear for our very own studio, since hiring an outside studio is proving to be a bit challenging. So while we are still absolutely doing this with fun at the heart of it, we would be so very grateful if any of you listening would be inclined to throw a few dollars our way. Even just the cost of a cup of coffee a month, which also happens to equate to the cost of a pineapple for your pizza. Or a pineapple off your pizza. (laughs) Hey Team Sarah, would make a real difference to us in keeping the lights on. We just want to say a huge thank you to our inaugural Patreon supporters, which we are so excited about. So shout out Julie R, Genevieve B, Clementine P and Mickey K. Thank you so much. We are so, so grateful for your support. And even if you are just here listening, we are so honored that you're choosing to spend your valuable time with us. Today we get to talk to Emma Reimer, a Stanthorpe-based 24-hour mountain biker. Emma's Instagram bio sums her and our conversation up pretty perfectly. It says, a page dedicated to my mountain biking midlife crisis. When I naively took up mountain biking at 40, I had no idea how all-consuming it would become. (laughs) Emma speaks about her early introduction to the bike and her amazing village that she is recruited to go from being a total rookie to racing 24-hour championships, completing several Everesting experiences, and completing her first bikepacking event in 2021. Emma really is a perfect example of our everyday adventurer, balancing work, family, training and racing. We could have talked to Emma for ages as she has some amazing adventures to share and we're just so excited to see what she has in store for 2022. Cue the music with Kristen. episode 16 of the Into the Wee Hours podcast. My name is Sarah Pendergrass and I am here with my co-host Bear Vorton and Kristen. <laughs> Can you <he> speak Bear? <laughs> he does have a bark collar on just to make sure that he doesn't speak. <laughs> so we're super excited today. We are recording from the basement again which is going to be my favorite thing to say because Kristen hates it. <laughs> and we are joined in person by Emma Reimer. Welcome Emma. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you here. Yeah, very exciting. So we only really, well, I've only just met Emma in person, um, just showing up at my house today. So thank you. But Emma obviously has this like crazy calm energy. So both of my border collies, (laughs) every time they come over is like, somebody new. So Sarah comes over, they're like, yes. And Moose is getting this big barking and he's jumping. Emma walks in and they're like, oh, you're like a long lost. 
best friend. You just have your pets. <laughs> and I was like, this is amazing. They, ne- they never, never bark. <laughs> they always bark when anybody comes over. Well, and the best thing being that Emma was talking about Kristen's dog trainer skills. So Kristen now looks like a pro dog trainer. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, you are. Oh, but- uh, yeah. <laughs> I think every dog trainer, though, it's like every psychologist needs a psychologist, right? Every dog trainer actually has the worst behaved dog. <laughs> No, no, I think we had that discussion beforehand about Derby, so... Yes. yes. (laughs) Well, yeah, we're really excited to have you on, Emma. There's been a lot of really cool stuff that you've done and quite a lot to get into as well. So we do like to warm things up with a little quick-fire questions. I've noticed. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) because this is the first time you've done a podcast. So, yeah, it's a nice way to kind of settle in. Yeah, and we get to ask you some really deep and meaningful questions. So I'm going to kick off with the favourite one being Emma. Pineapple on pizza, hell's yeah or hell's no? Hell's yeah, but only on Hawaiian. Okay, so not like a um, just throw pineapple on everything? Definitely not. It's a sitting on the fence answer. Okay, okay. (laughs) I'm still taking it as a yeah. Yeah, I'll take it as a yes. (laughs) One of you can take it as a yes and one of you can take it as a no. Yeah. (laughs) I almost got tricked into it and I'm going to tell you this now before Phil does. My dad sent through a photo of a pizza and it had pepperoni on it and I didn't really look at it. He was like, oh, are you, look at my beautiful pizza. Are you guys still eating gluten? So I thought that the conversation was around the fact that it was a gluten filled pizza. I was like, yeah, of course I'll take a slice of that. And feels like, are you sure? And it actually had pineapple <laughs> on it. I'm like, no, no, no. I revoke that. I'm not taking it. <laughs> I thought the issue was the gluten, not the pineapple. Anyways, uh, next question. <laughs> There's been quite a lot that's happened in 2020 and 2021, maybe a little bit more locally. Um, yes. Obviously due to COVID. Um, what is your highlight of the year past? Ooh, there are still many. They're just more local. But I think my first bike packing trip with Riz Divide, that mm. was just amazing. Yep, 450 Ks, um, 11,000 meters of vert, I think. Um, thought I'd do it in three days did it in four and only just it was just yeah it was mind mind blowing and eye-opening and thank you to Rebecca Stone for inviting me along yeah that's yeah that's so cool I hope we can talk a little bit more about that there's Mm. a route that I would love to explore and it seems pretty full-on that's for sure yes that's awesome (laughs) it wasn't roads (laughs) (laughs) a few roads yeah bit of hiker bike in there a little bit so bearing in mind this podcast will drop on boxing day so 26th of december we're heading into 2022 would you like to share with us an intention that you have for the new year thinking about whether they're personal intentions or bike intentions but bike intentions I'm definitely looking forward to competitions being back on the calendar mm. um, so my first big a race would that you know in my mind is Hidden Vale 24 in April yeah um, definitely eyeing off Riz Divide again with the longer route gulp um, in May um, looking at the first Australian gravel national championships I think in the end of July and then national 24s in December. So nice. I think that's my year already planned. That yeah. is quite a lot of really good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> and when just so for people who are not necessarily familiar with it, the 24s that we're talking about are mountain bike specific events. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. start at 12 on Saturday, finish at 12 on Sunday. Amazing. Wow. How and exciting. so you did mention that you've got your bike intentions. What are your personal intentions? I think I've had a lot of life change um, over the last two years, not COVID related, but COVID's had an impact. And looking, I've 
Not looking. I'm in the process very definitely of moving from full-time teaching to relief teaching, and that's that's certainly been much easier this year than last year. And with that, as I've made space, which I thought was for relaxing and family time and life balance, other things are coming into the space. Um, so I'm just as busy as I was, but absolutely loving it. I've been doing kids coaching in the school holidays with Ride Technics and, yeah, loving that journey. I've been doing level zero courses or sort of the foundation course under Oz Cycling, um, helping coaches, new coaches to become coaches, um, and then also doing some gravel gravel coaching and looking at doing some tour leading um, with ladies groups this coming year with Ride Sunshine Coast. So I don't know that I've got any more spare time, but I'm certainly filling it with things I love. I love this and I love how like your personal intentions were very much bike intentions as well, which is part of the reason. No, it's great. It's part of the reason you're here to discuss like how this has become such a part of your life. It's fantastic. Is it fair to say that one of my 2022 intentions is to weed the garden? Um, (laughs) Go big or go home. (laughs) Go for a ride or weed the garden. Yeah. I'm working on it. That's right. Well, that's why we've got them all banked up in the ride stuff. That's easier than weeding the lawn. And you do have quite a lawn that you'd probably need to weed. You uh, yes. About it, a yes. Lot of space. So we've got about three quarters of an acre. Mm. Um, and yeah, solid clay. So not, not very friendly for gardens. Yeah. Not very friendly at all. Um, well, you have done, well, you've got a lot of intentions for racing for this up and coming year. You've obviously found the joy of racing. What's your most memorable race? Again, so many. I think so many. Um, <laughs> I've I've loved I've loved racing from the very beginning, um, but probably my first twenty four is what really stuck in my mind and just sealed the deal in terms of I found my niche, um, and that was great. You know, I'm not a not a fast racer. I just happen to still have a competitive streak, and I just needed to find a vent for it. And yeah, 24-hour racing and everything that went into it just suited me and maybe my little bit of a type A obsessive personality. And then, yeah, bringing it all together, um, that that was pretty cool. And just riding and going, I'm actually doing what I really want to do. And yeah, while you're riding a 24, you've got time to look back and um, think about the journey, I guess. And I was doing that a lot. I had a lot of demons come out the day before on the practice lap and going what am I doing and can I do this and then once the race actually started it was just I'm in my element and I'm loving it and yeah just keep riding and everything was new so riding from the you know they have a four hour and a 24 hour at the same time so you've got the company a lot of company in the four hour and then that clears and you've got the track with just the 24 hour riders then, you know, it's working to dinner time, working through the night, and everything changes at night. You've got all the night animals that come out. Um, you know, the tracks feel different. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got the sunrise and all that. And then, yeah, working towards the end. And by the end, I was, if I'd gone any slower, I would have gone backwards. Um, <laughs> but just just loved it and persisted and, yeah, as I say, found, found my niche. Um, Dylan, is, my husband, is my support crew. And he was saying to me afterwards, people were saying to him, well, when do you think she'll sleep, you know, or how long do you think she'll sleep for? And he was just looking at them going, she's not going to sleep. And mm-hmm. yeah, so he knew my personality and knew yeah. that it was it was a 24, not a, a six plus six or a, a two rides with a sleep in the middle. Amazing. And where was that race? So that was Hidden Vale. That's Hidden Vale, yeah. 
Great. And that's Hidden Vale. Have you ridden there, Kristen? No. It's a pretty um, it's technical. Was that the fair description of that course? Or It certainly is for me. Yeah. Yes. Like Hidden Vale was actually one of the first like mountain bike holidays that I went on. And I was definitely challenged. And my like my hands went numb yeah. so quickly because it's yes. so rough there. It's really rocky. And it took me two weeks, I think, to get proper feeling back in my hands. They were pins and needles and numb. Is that um, just from all the breaking? And I, I think and the vibrations, bit of, yeah. I think, yeah. For me, probably the death grip as well. But <laughs> I'm just thinking for myself, that's what it would be is the breaks. <laughs> yeah, no, just so it, just the vibrations are, I think. Is yeah, I think so too. And by the end of it, I was actually wearing, coming from Stanthorpe, the thickest winter gloves I had just to try and um, ease that. And I've also switched to running carbon bars, which take yeah, some of that out. Okay, interesting. But yeah, there's definitely an after effect every time. Nice. Just oh, it's so incredible to do your first 24 hour and not sleep as well. Like, I'm amazed. <laughs> um, okay, so moving on to the Christmas theme again. Yes, Emma, what is one thing you would love to find under your Christmas tree? <laughs> Assuming you away. have a Christmas tree, I can't get away from the, uh, the bike theme, but I would love to find a new Scott Spark um, under there. However, Dylan I, I think, Hinton, <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> I think regardless of the budget stretching that far, the availability would be a key issue. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely caught my eye. Maybe maybe by next year. And yeah. that's a cross-country mountain bike. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Bikes are always N plus one. I, uh, oh, oh I, yes. I don't share the same sentiments. I'm kind of like running <laughs> shoes are N plus one, but I understand. Yeah. I've, I've really been told cool. no more. I did manage to sneak in a little secondhand um, hardtail recently for bikepacking. Um, so it's got a purpose it has it absolutely needs to be in the quiver <laughs> <laughs> but we've already moved from one shed to a bigger shed where we are that's the bike shed and I have been told that there is no room for a bigger bike shed so that's it <laughs> and the uh the van that you you let us know about as well it keeps getting modified for all these new bikes that come on board yes. too that's pretty funny so with the van it was originally the bed was inside and two bikes then I sort of said, oh, you know, now I'm a 24-hour racer. I really need two bikes for 24s and I'd like you to have a bike so we can do the, you know, the pre-loop beforehand. Banking three bikes meant the bed had to go on the roof and we can now fit under this current version up to five bikes if we take the pedals off. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so that is all my husband's doing. Um, yeah, very Dylan's very analytical and has gone through and worked it out and it's, yeah, it's a Tetris puzzle. Um, but he's really got a lot of storage and a lot of bikes in there. Yeah. What kind of van is it? It's an old Peugeot. So we were looking for something that actually wasn't too big. Um, I'd change that if I was looking again now because I want more bikes. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I wanted something that I was comfortable driving, not mm. something massive. Um, and we were also looking for something that had three seats so that when Dylan's daughter Poppy comes with us, we can all fit in the front. Um, or if she's with her mum, that we can fit Derby in the middle too. <laughs> nice. And it's tricky it. to find that, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah that so. was our big limiting factor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, very last one. Yes. We do like to end on a little bit of a thought-provoking one. So oh, we gosh. did have, you said that you listened to the podcast. So yes. we have had Luke Pryor, who's a sports psychologist, who came on. Yes. Uh, a big theme of that conversation was the fact that gratitude is really important, but also self-compassion. And so we like to challenge people to yes. give yourself a compliment. My compliment to myself is going to be that I'm stubborn and that can be taken the wrong way and in the wrong context, yes, but it means, yeah, when I get an idea in my head that I will, 
Yeah, chew at it like a dog with a bone and keep working at it. A dog with a bone? (laughs) (laughs) Was I allowed to say the B word in front of Ben? Yes, yes. (laughs) That's cool. I like that. Yeah, that's a nice compliment to give yourself. Awesome. Well, you made it through the quick fire questions. We're all warmed up and loosey-goosey and almost sweating because it's super hot. (laughs) So again, you've listened to the podcast. You probably know, like, I love opening the floor to people. It can be as long or as little as you'd like, but you've got quite a background. Um, I'd like you to just kind of introduce yourself, give a bit of an orange story for who is Emma and how you got to be where you are. Okay, I'll start with um, the question of where do you come from, which for me is always a trick question. So I was born in Cambridge in the UK. I lived there till I was four and a half. I moved to Johannesburg in South Africa till I was nine, moved back to the UK. Um, My parents decided it was way too cold and then moved to Sydney when I was 11. So I lived in Sydney and sort of through my high school years, but I was never a city girl. I wanted to live in the country. So I went to uni out at Windsor, which at the, or near Windsor, which at the time was quite rural. I don't know what it's like now. Um, studied agriculture. And then with my first husband lived in Gunnedah, then Dolby, then Narrabri, and then Toowoomba. Um, so after we separated, I stayed in Toowoomba. And I'm now in Stanford, where I've been yeah, for about five years with Dylan. Amazing. So, so you went pretty much straight from the city into the country and all those country spots. Yes, yeah. very rural. Yeah. And like, what drew you to the country? I wanted to live in the country and have horses. That was kind of yeah, <laughs> what a lot of people like to do. Yes. I didn't know if you were a horse person. I, yeah. I was. Um, I was one of these horse mad girls. The way, that was my obsession growing up. Um, it's now been replaced. But yeah, that was my obsession growing up. Um, and I can still remember I was just about to turn seven and my mum had always said when I was 10, I could get riding lessons. And there was a program on TV and I was engrossed in the program that said seven was the perfect age to learn Mm -hmm. to ride. So I can remember running into the kitchen and screaming at my mum to come and listen to this show. And then for my seventh birthday, I got a year's worth of riding lessons and then everyone else in the family pitched in with all the gear. Um, But a year's worth of riding lessons never stopped. I spent holidays with my my riding instructor at the time. Um, Yeah, we'd live with her for the holidays, which suited my parents as working parents. Um, every country we lived in, yeah, rode horses, spent all my spare time at the stable. And then once we settled in Australia, I had my own horses. Um, yeah, that got harder as I, as I was at uni. Um, but yeah, still had, had horses. They were just in retirement. Um, yeah, intended to, to ride horses, live in the country, but moved to the country and had children instead. And unfortunately for me, not unfortunately about about having children, but neither of them were horsey. I worked really hard on my daughter and she reminds me of this frequently, but it it wasn't their passion. Um, So it was far too time consuming to have as a hobby or as a sport or an interest with kids who weren't interested. And so really for the next however many years, my my sport involved taking them to sport Mm. and letting them pursue what they wanted to do. Um, and then fitting in around that. So yeah, we had a, a large dog at the time. So walking the dog and then as they got older, I could do more. Um, so yeah, going to the gym, running 10 Ks and the school I was working at in Toowoomba was fantastic. They had a, what they called an adventure club, um, under some really great teachers. And yeah, so I got involved with that when they got older and basically I had mini breaks out camping and hiking and having adventures, um, and called it work. So that was fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. Have you had much to do with horses, Sarah? 
Um, I was severely asthmatic as a child and horse hair was like a huge trigger. (laughs) So so you stayed far away. So I had lots of horsey farming friends, but they pretty much landed in me in hospital each time. So yeah, Yeah. just being in the dog industry, a lot of people come from a horse background. So I know tiny little stuff. So what sort of horseback, like what sort of activities were you doing? Yeah. Um, so did a lot of, um, well, pony club mainly once I had my horses but within that I was really keen on eventing Mm -hmm. um would have loved to have pursued show jumping and and worked for a show jumper for a little while with her horses um and then as I got older really got into dressage um okay you were dressage in my gap year yeah when I worked um on horse studs and and a dressage place so that was yeah awesome cool Um, very different very different and yeah got to ride horses that were far above my skill level and they were teaching me. So that was yeah, a really nice experience. And given that then horses petered out, it was a nice way to finish and to have those memories to look back on. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think dressage after the last Olympics just took off with the dancing horses <laughs> and the soundtracks. And then the, yeah, it was all yeah. of the stuff, the spinoffs that came through. Yeah. 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 I, yes. That, that became just, again, and I think it's that little bit obsessive personality, but that training and the really every little nitty gritty thing has to be thought of and and taken into account yeah Yeah, I bet and so do you reckon because you I mean you talked in the quick fire about the 24 hour and like your stubbornness um as being yes your your superpower essentially are you getting a theme here (laughs) but do you reckon that like competitive side that began in that horse environment oh very much so Mm, yep yeah um as a child growing up I definitely wanted to pursue yeah competitive horses um or horse riding um, yeah, as I say, worked um, as a working pupil and realised that there was absolutely no money um, in terms of coming in and making money doing it. So, yeah, decided to get a job and then come back to horses and spend all my money on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with, with having the children, part of the decision to to let horses go was knowing that I wouldn't ever be happy just going for a trail ride once a week. That wasn't what I wanted. If I wanted horses, I was going to do it obsessively Um, and that was probably not good for motherhood so yeah all or nothing yeah and so obviously the horses are kind of that theme of getting you outside and getting you active and things like that but then you mentioned that once the kids were obviously in the picture that outdoor kind of activity looked a bit different you came walking the dog and going for runs and stuff so is that kind of where that transition then came into different activities outside yes I think so I think being outdoors has always been a central theme and being out in nature um and as as I say as they got older being able to go hiking um was absolutely a lovely release um because the kids grew up in Toowoomba, is that what yeah. you were saying? There's well, gr- mainly, yes. Yeah, there's great hiking in Toowoomba. There's like lovely ranges and stuff, hey. And there is, there are. Um, but I was lucky in that the adventure club that I was with, um, Bob Harvey was the, the teacher who ran that and just had an extensive um, picture, uh, sorry, photographic memory of pretty well of all the and I mean all the national parks in southeast Queensland. And mm. so we would go off trail hiking for three days with a group of boys with everything on our backs. And we'd walk in and we'd walk out. We'd go from Friday to Sunday. And, and that was work. So we'd go to these amazing places that he knew. Um, I, it was my introduction to Stanthorpe. We, would, we hiked a lot um, in Sundown National Park and Girraween National Park, where you know, I'm now close to. Mm. But he would be able to say, Oh, look, um, over here, if we just go down this bit and down that bit, there's a lie bird that nests there. 
and he would know all these things. So he'd go down and you'd, you'd see the live bird nest and he, he just knew all the places and the, the, the spots to go and he's been great in taking me under his wing and even now he will still take me out and go, there's just this one thing I really want to show you. And so he knows all the features. He's shown me some underground caves and he's shown me different bits and pieces that are in there. So this is on my, my doorstep virtually, but he's been the one who's introduced me. So And it was great. When, when Dylan and I were, were dating and I was still in Toowoomba, he joined us on a couple of hikes. So he also got to see his local national park from a different perspective. Wow, what an incredible guide. That yes. sounds amazing. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. He really is. And introducing me to all the ins and outs of, of camping like that and hiking like that with everything on my back, it's now really come into value with the bikepacking. Yeah, I bet. Being able to look after yourself in yeah. that remote environment. Yeah. So tell us then, we, we got a slight sense of the fact you might be interested in bikes <laughs> in the beginning yes. of this. Tell us how that transition happened. All right. So my teaching background again, I was on year nine camp and that particular year mountain biking was one of the activities. So whenever I went on year nine camp, my philosophy was that you do all the activities. So it was a boys school with all the boys, unless it was the team building stuff where you stood back and let them sort it. Um, but if you've got kids who don't want to do something or who are scared of something or nervous, then you doing things that you're also nervous about um, yeah, is a good example, I think. So my mountain biking was the activity that year and I was definitely nervous. I had learned to ride a bike as about a nine-year-old and I actually have no memory of learning to ride a bike. My father is quite disappointed in that. Sorry, Dad. Um, but he does assure me that he taught me to ride a bike when we moved back to the UK and I would go for a few rides while he and Mum jogged. Um, but I hadn't really hadn't ridden at all, literally two rides max as a teenager, so in 30 years. So I got on never mountain bike, never ridden off-road and, and did mountain biking and I was, yeah, hooked. I actually have some photos from that first session. Um, yeah, it is. It's good to look back on. And I look at the trail and it was an easy fire road and I'm trying really hard to keep my elbows in, which is what you do on horses, thinking that I was doing all these right things. Um, but just loved it. It reminded me of riding cross country um, on horses and it was the outlet that I was looking for that was exercise um, but also nature and that whole thing of being outdoors. So I decided that I was going to be a mountain biker I didn't really know where that was going to lead me at the time. I started doing spin classes at the gym to build fitness. Um, you can't fall off a spin bike, so that was my <laughs> philosophy. Um, so the school camp was at Easter. By the December Christmas holidays, a, a colleague, Eric, took pity on me and loaned me his bike. He just sort of, yeah, take this. He showed me how to oil the chain and do those basic things and left me with it. Um, so I started riding that bike and literally learning how to change gears, how to turn a circle, um, how to ride off a curb, which was really, really scary at the time. Um, how to stay upright. I'm still working on that one. But, <laughs> yeah. A little bit of context. Emma comes in and she's got this like elbow that's full gashed oh. open. If only I'd done it, you know, tomorrow, not yesterday. No one would know. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so that was that was awesome. And the fact that he just said go for it. And then, yeah, other colleagues took me under their wing and took me out on the trails a little bit. Um, I met Dylan um, oh, probably three months later, not in a mountain biking context, but he is a mountain biker. So I used that to my advantage. And um, yeah, he was pretty thrilled to find someone who wanted to go riding. He 
wasn't quite so thrilled when he saw where my skills were at. Um, he admits now that he was terrified every time he took me out, but he was incredibly patient and he would find to the best of his abilities the trails that suited me. Um, and yeah, he, he drove from Stanthorpe, we would do a night ride every Wednesday night. And um, when we didn't have the kids that weekend, we'd go out on the weekend and do riding as well. So I was getting what I could there in, in getting out as much as I could, getting some advice and instruction. But I was also you know, trying to impress him. We were new in a relationship and I was getting frustrated and cranky and falling off. So I decided that I also needed to, to get some coaching. Initially, um, Rod Hickey at Toowoomba Mountain, Club, Mountain Bike Club was doing some kids coaching after school. It was more sort of fitness with a few skills but I approached him and he accepted me as his um, token non-kid in the group. So, so were I, you the... Oh, yeah. You were amongst were like all the... nine and ten-year-olds <laughs> and me, and they would lap me and, you know, beat me and, yes. Uh, but anyway, I persisted and, you know, they were great and put up with me and, you know, made me part of the group as best they could. And then from that, um, Rod gave me a few individual lessons and... I then went to a ladies' mountain biking day that other ladies in Toowoomba um, invited me along to and met John Pennell, who was my first coach, and he was, yeah, he's been really instrumental, firstly, in helping me to develop those skills to keep me safe um, in that space where I could get frustrated and cranky and, you know, away from Dylan so I could still maintain a little bit of the illusion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he worked hard to keep me safe and develop my skills. And then he later introduced me to the idea of racing. So we know where, where that's gone. Um, and at first that was with the Wild West XC series, which is local community racing with local clubs and a really inviting environment. So that was the perfect introduction. And then, as I say, the races got, got longer and longer from there. And then a few years later, he sort of suggested to me that I, I should look into getting my, what was my then level zero or the community instructor. Um, and I was nervous about doing that and putting myself in that space, but he, he assured me that it was a good thing to do to also develop my own skills. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so I did that and did some, um, a little bit of instructing and come and try days with Stanthorpe Mountain Bike Club or Southern Downs Mountain Bike Club and also opened up uh, after school mountain biking club when I moved there. So that's still still going. So Friday afternoons and the kids would, yeah, come and learn to get their basic skills before you know they get their mountain bikes and hit Mount Marley yeah it's just like it's such a fantastic and it, and I hate to use the word inspiring because it's so overused <laughs> but it is an inspiring journey that at am I right like at 41 you essentially get yes. into this as a complete novice and you're now not only loving riding you've raced some incredible races and you're coaching and sharing your knowledge because you have a teaching background as well yes. so that feels like a natural fit I imagine too albeit daunting when you start coaching <laughs> yes. something like mountain biking. It's just a really, it's such a cool journey. Oh, thank you. And I've surprised myself with the coaching in that it has become one of my key joys within mountain biking is seeing that. Um, now that I'm in Stanthorpe, I'm getting coaching in Brisbane with Dylan Cooper at Ride Technics. And yeah, I've been doing the kids coaching in the school holidays with him. And the more I do, the more I love it. And the more comfortable I'm getting in that space. And as I mentioned to you before the podcast, just recently, I've actually been running the foundation courses with Oz Cycling on actually getting other people into coaching. And that's been really, really cool. Um, one of my very early courses that I ran was with a group of outdoor educators who run school camps. And I was able to say to them, 
this is what you guys started. You you think it's the kids that you're influencing, but sometimes it's actually the teachers. And look at yeah, look at how life has changed. Yeah, fantastic. That's a cool way to be able to give back to kind of that community that really gave you a lot in terms of showing you this is what this is what you love. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of people don't find that and have that immediate click with anything either. So I think that's really special that you found that on your very first mountain bike. Like, yep, I have <laughs> found it. it. This is it. This like is that it. doesn't happen for a lot of people. And, and it didn't happen for me with a lot of things. I yeah. tried other things that, you know, I enjoyed and other things that I, I loved, but not that instant, yep, I'm useless. I don't know what this journey is going to entail. I know I've got a long way to go. Um but yeah, this is what I want to do. So in my head, I was going to be a mountain biker. I just didn't actually know what a mountain biker was. So yeah. Which is just awesome in itself. Yeah. And, and as an adult as well, being okay with taking on that beginner mindset, Huge. like standing in a group with nine and 10 year olds, <laughs> I'm going to say a lot of people aren't going to do that. You yep. know, like it, it takes some strength of character to be like, no, I want to be here. And <laughs> it's okay to be lapped by a small child. <laughs> it's not okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you learn to live with it. <laughs> Sorry, is that that competitive streak coming out again? No, it's um, a very, I love that. It's an incentive to get better. Okay, yes. we'll try that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I look, I one of the things you sort of mentioned um, in the pre-reading and bits and pieces was about it being a very male-dominated sport. Yeah. And even six years ago, it was far more male-dominated than what it is now. But um, by being prepared to put myself out there, the men who were out riding were absolutely fantastic and so happy to see someone who was out riding and to um, help me in any way they could and that's been at every step of the journey from that really raw beginner stage where my colleagues at work who rode would would um you know come and do an after school ride with me to to other people out on the trails helping me and and then to other women so there were women um Kate Craft and Juliet Redding were really key in setting up um, a lot of women's activities and women's events around Toowoomba. And at the time they were riding um, at five every morning. So I would try to get there on time. They invited me to join them so I could ride with people. Um, and, you know, at that level, crashing was a real concern. So, yeah, riding with other people was a safety thing. Mm. Um, and I would try frantically to drop my daughter off at swimming and then get there on time. I never did get there on time, but I, you know, they'd often wait for me and I'd go with them. But they you know, they were inclusive and other women along the way have been inclusive. As the events have got longer, I think that endurance community is a very inclusive community because you're, as much as anything, racing yourself as racing other people. When I race a 24, um, for sure, you know, to stand on a podium is amazing. But my goal is a kilometre goal and to beat myself and to, to, to do what I want in the race. Um, and I think there's very much that mindset with everybody. So other races have been fantastic and that's other races, um, you know, men and women, including women in my category. So Michelle Woods is, um, you know, national champion in the 40 to 49-year-old Is that age. Shredder Shell yes, on Instagram? Yes, it certainly is. Yep. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She's fantastic. And, you know, she's been key. We, one, of, one of the things I've learned through COVID is to, if you can't have race goals, to have a goal a month. Um, mm. And so that's what I've been working on with my, my coach, Anna Beck. And this month, my goal is a 200k ride in one day. So yeah, Michelle's coming down next weekend and I've route planned. So I'm learning how to route plan as well. 
and um, we'll go and have an adventure. How many Ks we end up doing and where we actually end up. I've had some interesting adventures when I've tried to route plan. Um, so, Michelle, when you hear this, hopefully it's all gone well. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that that sense of, of yeah, community. Um, Rebecca Stone, as I said, is, is another amazing 24-hour racer and she was the one who invited me, come along and try bikepacking. I think you'd like this. And she was right. So... Mm. It's it's the men who are out there and give me advice and there've been some really key characters there. Um, shout out to Mike Hawley and shout out to Russell Worthington who've given advice on the way. And even at the time, the national champion, or I suppose there hasn't been another national champion, so the or nationals, mm. so elite national champion Kate Penglace gave me a lot of advice when I started. So at the time, I was with Jodie Willett as a fitness coach, and so was she, and I got a lovely long. Um, email from her with think about this and think about this and these are the things to consider so everybody has helped on the way I think that's a really important aspect I know that you totally felt that when you were doing all of your bike stuff as well that the bike community is so inclusive yes and everybody's out there to help everybody else Mm. because like what you said it's as much as racing everybody else but it's mostly an individual sport really when it comes down to it at the end of the day so I think that's a cool aspect of it, yeah. And you do have different pockets, like the bike community is a that's very all encompassing. Like I, I know I'm always like biased towards off road, but I do <laughs> think like mountain bike community, bike packing, yes. like especially because bike packing really feels like it's just growing and growing and growing. Mm. And so many people who even like roadies are like suddenly buying a gravel bike. I know, <laughs> isn't it awesome? <laughs> and selfishly, the more people we can encourage and get out doing it, then the more. Um, trails and opportunities and access for bikes that that we get and the more that we can do that in a sustainable way with people who are conscious and aware and people see that we're out in nature and that's getting people in nature so they want to conserve it I think that's another wonderful spin-off yeah, 100%. Yeah. The yeah. number of gravel events and bikepacking events that have popped up in the last <laughs> year is incredible. It's yes. just, yeah, and it's really fun to see that. And but, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of been not a good side of border closures but the border closures have forced things like the alternative hunt race that's Mm. happening or not race event that's happening you know everyone's like okay what can I do in my state yes (laughs) while borders have been closed so it's fun to see people just getting innovative like you say exploring new trails and and getting out there and I love your challenge a month that's really like it's such a nice way. I've, I've been talking personally about it. like I'm really lacking structure at the moment. I don't really have any goals. Like I have no routine. I'm a bit all over the place. And I think something as simple as, simple as that is a really nice way to keep focused. Yeah, it's uh, it's only been the last few months that I've been doing it, mm. but it's made a big difference to my mindset. I am goal orientated mm. and I want to be working towards something. And I, I felt lost, um, especially you know, uh, coming into 24-hour racing in 2019 was a fantastic time. 2020 was meant to be this massive year with world championships for 24-hour solos in Armidale in November. Um, They got postponed to 2021 and then there was, you know, up in the air and, um, yeah, eventually it was just nationals or maybe Asia Pacific's just nationals, then it became just nationals and then it became nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to keep working and keep training and, you know, through the Stanthorpe winter, um, spinning away on Zwift with, with these goals, and then they're just hazy. Um, so this was my way of, yeah, having something to work towards, and yeah, things like route planning a two hundred k route, um, and then yeah, going and riding it with a friend is is a fantastic way to. I've still got to be fit to do that, and 
if there are you know racing going ahead then I've got the training behind me some good really good base miles but if racing doesn't go ahead then that's an event in and of its own right totally and you're wearing an everything (laughs) t-shirt as well (laughs) yes not intentionally but definitely um it's one of my favorite t-shirts so when I'm up here staying on holiday and I have a very limited wardrobe I was warned the basement was um, stifling. So <laughs> we're, we're in... definitely heating up here. <laughs> it was either, either um, what I wear to the gym or with jeans. Yes. So... <laughs> Don't wear jeans down here. You will sweat the room. <laughs> <laughs> so you, one of your things that you um, let us know is that you have done some Everesting. Um, you've done those on Zwift, is that yes, right? Yes, I've only done, done Zwift Everestings. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a goal for 2022 is an outdoor one. It was actually a goal for earlier Um, or a couple of months ago, a month ago, Um, but the wet weather put an end to that. And so I actually shuffled my 200K and my Everesting. I was going to do the 200K ride with Michelle a couple of weeks ago, but the weather was really bad. It was pouring with rain all day. And so I switched and we did have a laugh afterwards in that my first Everesting on Zwift was part of an an, um, world record Everesting attempt that Andy Van Bergen ran. So that was what got me into the Zwift Everesting. And then I did another one um, about six months later as a, I guess, something to do. I was post-broken collarbone and I'd rebuilt my fitness and wanted to see where I was at. And both of those had quite a bit of, you know, well, within the family, a bit of fanfare. There was a big shop. There was, you know, um, Poppy Dylan's daughter wrote lots of messages on a whiteboard and we had the, you know, the the laps and she came in every time and crossed them off and, you know, it it was a big deal. And then this one, it was like, oh. I can't do my outdoor ride. What can I do? And I got on the trainer and Dylan sort of looked at me and I said, oh, I'll just do like a base Everesting. It'll be fine. So a, a halfway. And then he looked at me when I'd been on it a few hours and I think I might just do the lot. So I went from you know, an, an indoor Everesting that with lots of fanfare and lots of um, occasion to I think I'll just go and grind away for 17 hours in the spare bedroom. Yeah, Yeah, I cannot say that I've ever done that before. Jeez. And I guess like with that in mind, we do have a diverse audience and I think we've probably touched on Everesting before, but do you mind explaining what it is, Emma? Because immediately hearing 17 hours spinning in your house, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Um, So Everesting, finding a hill and it's expanded with COVID to be a real hill or a virtual hill. And um, basically riding up and down it till you've reached the height of or cumulative height of climbing of Everest, so 8,848 metres. Or if you're a glutton for punishment, going on to 10,000 metres for a nice even number. Just rounding it out, you know, because <laughs> you're already at 8,800. It's you like you're well. so close, <laughs> but you're nearly at nine and then nine is nearly 10. So the first two I did do to 10,000 because oh that's a nice round number. And, you know, you're there, um, nearly there. And then the last one, I just did that to 9,000. I'd had a lot of... Just to 9,000. I know. I was like, we need to just remove the word just yeah. from this, please. There'd been technical issues and stand-up internet is not always the greatest and I'd had disconnection issues and Uh-oh. I think I knew I wasn't going to beat my time, which was kind of like in the back of my mind. Of, if I'm fitter, I'll beat my time and I knew that wouldn't happen. So it was a case of, yep, save it, get off and be done before something else happens. Yeah, wow. And do you use the Sea to Sky route on Swift or what do you um, use? Up to Swift. Oh, up to Swift, that's it, okay. And uh, so, d- yes, it is the Sea to Sky is the whole thing. So the short 
So yeah, going up out to Zwift, but sea to sky gets you there. Yeah. Okay. Is that I've, the loop on Zwift, the yeah. virtual loop? Okay. I've never completed it. I'm like, <laughs> I started it one morning thinking, oh, I'll give this a crack, not realizing what I was setting myself up for. And I hadn't had breakfast or anything. And I'm on like switchback. I don't know what number. And it's like, yeah, no, I need to do this another time. <laughs> so you know on Zwift, you can invite people to join you on a ride. Yes. So here's a warning. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, can we do that thing where I'm attached to your back wheel? <laughs> the tow rope doesn't quite work on virtual. <laughs> but there's um, there's settings that you can can change the difficulty of the settings. You can, uh, if you, yeah. yeah okay. So definitely, if you're doing an Everesting, it needs to be a hundred percent. So that um, I think Alp de Zwift is right. Alp. I never say it right. Alp de Hoot. Um, okay, oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you very Dres. much. Yeah. Sorry about my pronunciation. Right no, no. Um, so it it is, um, I guess, a, a computer reconstruction of that route. Mm. So maybe post-COVID, sorry, honey, I'm saying this out oh, loud, oh. that could be like an outdoor Everesting we could look at. Wow. <laughs> that would be incredible. And as much as the graphics on Zwift are great, slightly more scenic being out there. <laughs> yes. And, and yeah. do you, do you just holes. coast down? How does so that... once you get to a certain point, the avatar will keep going to the bottom. And I can't remember how long it gives you. It is about eight minutes. So a, a, a benefit of indoor Everesting is that that's when you get off and run to the loo or grab snacks and then you get on before the bottom and turn around and go back up again. Ah, okay. So, yeah, the bum isn't quite on the seat for the full 17 hours. You do get, you know, an opportunity, as I say, go to the loo, change nicks. Yeah. Um, you know, that lots of sweat in an indoor Everesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, grab a drink or fresh towels and those sorts of things. Yeah, like the mental strength for this, Emma, is, I mean, it obviously comes across in the 24-hour racing. And, yeah, yeah. Indeed. It is huge. Like, that's a long time to sit on the bike. And in terms of, um, like, what does Dylan think of this, like, when you're doing this? He goes and watches movies. <laughs> no, I'll look, he's Dylan. He's um, <laughs> I say that he's great. So he will be around and, um, you know, even this last one, which was, you know, I had food for a big ride, but I didn't have, you know, the big shop and the big bake up beforehand and all that sort of thing. So he was like, well, what do you feel like? And really feel like actually some roast potatoes with rosemary and salt. And and so, you know, the, the potatoes went in the oven and then it takes me say 90 minutes to go up and back. Um, so by the time I was ready for the next snack, he, um, yeah, he had them ready so he he is a massive support and all the technical issues I'm useless so he's the one who comes in or oils the chain while I'm still spinning or if there's a disconnection and I'm like I'm so cranky what's going on he's the one who okay just try this um so yeah he's he's a massive massive background support and does he come along to all of your other races as well and he's that support crew for you? He is the support crew. He doesn't come along to to the races just with life and where we live. Whenever I race, it's a weekend away even for a short race. But certainly he's been to every 24 and he works harder than I do. He drives there, he drives home, he works nonstop for the 24 hours, um, basically making sure that yeah, my every whim is taken care of. Yeah. Crewing is, I mean, it's something I've done for various people running a hundred kilometer trail runs. And like, I always joke how exhausted I am Mm. at the end, but it's a big deal. The other thing as well that I find like, it's just a, it's a really nice reflection of your relationship is I have crewed for people because, um, they have previously had arguments with their (laughs) partners when their partners have been crewing for them 
have you had like any tense moments like when you've been facing those demons or is it just you've got a good <laughs> a good I, relationship there I think very early on I knew that I could go down that way and um it was very much a case of going no no actually I'm here to to enjoy this as well and I made sure that I didn't and it just changed my whole mindset from the very beginning mm. um not so much, I mean, I still have the moments where I want to get quicker in the transitions and I'm sort of hassling him to be quick. Um, and particularly in the first few hours at the last race, I wanted to cut my stopping time. Um, no matter how quickly you think you're being, you look at your standing time at the end of 24 hours and it's like, where did, where did that come from? Yeah. Um, so I, that was my mission. Um, and I, I did put him under pressure. You know, that first four to six hours when you're really trying to like go, mm. Um, but then I settled and realized that that was just silly. And yes, you want to be quick, but to be quick, you have to keep your pit crew on side. Um, and then the other thing was that particular race. Um, so that was my third 24 hour and probably my toughest in that I had a kilometer goal and I realized quite early on that the conditions weren't going to allow me to meet that kilometer goal. And that was, that was a mental battle. Um, and that one is probably the closest that I've come to just going and having a breather in, in the night. Um, yeah, the, the sleeping canopy on top of the van was looking quite appealing at about two in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and that one, a lot of people had gone to bed who wouldn't normally go to bed and it was very, very quiet. Uh, okay. Um, and he found that hard too, because he's obviously then staying up. The, uh, the plus side for all the other races is that when we go, the van is well set up and we do have a coffee pod machine and all these things. So he did have a few races going, oh, I'd really love a coffee, um, <laughs> as their pit crews had all gone to bed. Um, and that one, yeah, that was the moment where, not not a tense moment, but the the lowest I've, I think I've been and coming in and him having to sort of give me the support and a cuddle and going, no, no, you've got this and just don't think about the kilometres, just think about the riding. Um, and yeah, so that was a different different moment, but probably one of my toughest. And yeah, he was a great support then too. How do you mentally and physically train for all of this stuff while being... You have a job and while also being a mother. <laughs> yeah, I I certainly couldn't have done it when my kids were at home and younger. Because how old are your kids now? Uh, 21 and 23. Yeah, so then... they're self-sufficient, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that, children? <laughs> no, they are and they're great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if they'd been younger and at home, I couldn't have done it. Not with them doing other things that were different. And hats off to to the, the women who are out riding, sorry, I need a drink, yep. and, <laughs> and doing this with families because I think that's an amazing juggle. Um, so that's made life easy. Mm. Dylan's daughter um, is with us some of the time, so she's just 12, um, and that's, that's good because we have, um, in terms of training, in that I have time when she's not there, but also I'm very conscious that she's, she's my stepdaughter and we need some time together, but she also needs time with her dad on her own. Or at least that's my get out of jail card, and I play that one when I want to go and do long rides. You guys so. go get an ice cream. I'm just gonna Everest. <laughs> uh, look, she she thought the Everesting was fantastic um, because she got to stay up too. So yeah, it was definitely an all night party. The first two she was there, the last one she wasn't, um, and so she was allowed to stay up and help, and she had to come in and do the crossing off. So you know, Aww, yeah, it was a real family cool. affair. That is really cool. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff you said that you kind of did get into a bit of a, you know, mental low. Was it the last race that you had just done? Yeah. The, the 
actually April this year. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure you probably draw back on some of your other experiences, but I mean, how, why do you think that you've got such a really strong mental capacity? Genetics? I don't know. Um, it's nothing practiced it's, or anything like that? I think everything in life comes into it. And I do think that coming into it later in life, while I wish I'd come into it much earlier, you've got those life experiences to draw on. Um, and there you understand the thought of delayed gratification and I guess type two fun. Um, you know, even things like studying at uni and, you know, doing external study later, it's tough and it's hard and it's a grind in the moment. But then you've got something that's that's worth out of it. Yeah, worthwhile from it. So I think that it all plays in life experience, even if it's off the bike. Totally. There's a lot of people coming into trail racing or mountain biking, and I think they do. I think it's something definitely to be said that all of those life experiences are really what helps you to kind of get into it and be able to be strong without any specific things to draw back on. Like yeah. the very first 24-hour race, you're like, well, I've never done this before. <laughs> I, uh, have, uh, yes. And I knew I'd never done it before and I knew that it was going to be tough. And I was also with that particular one, um, you know, really conscious that I was coming into it older. So I'd heard people say things like, for example, oh, it takes a few, you know, three or four races to get your food, in, your food, in, your eating sorted. And I was like, well, I don't have three or four races to get this sorted. So maybe it's that more, I guess, mature mindset. I went and I found help and I spoke to dietitian approved and they, they set me up a meal plan. And I think Things like that have also been key. If you're not eating well, you don't have a good headspace. You don't cope physically. Um, you know, I had um, fitness coaching. I had skills coaching. So I brought in my village. And I also had the support of one of the bike shops in Toowoomba, I Ride Bikes. And they've been a massive support from from day dot. And just they ride 24 hours. So they were um, knowledgeable. They understood. They could talk through things with me um, and with Dylan. So all the yeah, the mechanical and the logistical side, that's that's his department. Um, as an example, one of the things I've really struggled with is lights. I, I'm curious to see. I've recently had laser vision, so how I'll go um, post-surgery. Post but my night vision has been absolutely woeful. Um, and so, you know, discussing with them, you know, what lights and what um, – what battery power they've got when they're on high because that's not in the advertising material. Mm. And then, again, Dylan, to his credit, going away and thinking things through, he actually came up with um, putting the lights and I have separate battery packs, so they have an internal battery, and he's gone and gone and found a company that makes battery packs so that I can get six hours out of a battery on high, which I don't think you can just buy. But all the support around me, sorry, going back to your question, it all feeds in. And it is solo 24-hour racing, but there's a whole tribe that actually gets you to the start and then carries you through to the finish. Um, and one of the things with iRide that's been really nice is, as I said, they ride 24, so they're out on course and you get that um, encouragement as you go. They get a coffee on the next lap. Um, <laughs> it works both ways. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a solo sport, even though yeah, you're out there on your own. Totally. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you did mention that you had a nutritionist. I'm just a little bit mm. curious. What do you eat for the 24 hours? Because in the notes that you gave us, you said it was pretty carb 
heavy. Oh, absolutely. Which yes. I love because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to go low carb and just do all of this fat burning stuff for endurance. And that might work for some people. But I think women's bodies are built very differently. Like we kind of need those carbs. Yeah, certainly I do. Mm. Um, and she's been great and has really changed my mindset around food. If we're talking about how life has changed, that's mm. definitely one way of moving from that very typical female perspective of weight management, weight management, weight management to actually I have to fuel for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's she's created that that mindset in me of fueling for the training so that I'm not wearing myself out and getting sick and tired and you know too too often and any more than necessary with the training because it is a heavy training load. Um, carb loading, which is a bit like Christmas. Um, so <laughs> <Sounds> any- awesome. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So before a 24 hour, I'd have a two day carb loading plan through her and it's all created through the foods that I like to eat. So yeah, it is, it's like Christmas morning tea, bakery item. Um, you know. <laughs> nice. There is fine print down the bottom about, um, <laughs> this is not a long-term eating plan. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, she, she's great. And then, um, yeah, she she put together. Well, she's put together two separate ones. So the first twenty four hour um, eating plan, and then an updated version as I've got more aware of what I like and don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, where yeah, very carb heavy, but a little bit of protein too, mm-hmm. because obviously it's it's a long event. Um, but yeah, keeping my carbs up, giving me choices of sweet and salty, um, savory, um, yeah, all the different flavors because flavor fatigue can be a real thing too so real yep. yeah and um yeah as much as possible real food yeah, um, I was but also ask if it was gels or real yeah. food I ha- the real food? certainly have gels and I have infinite um in a bottle on my bike so that I'm getting carbs that way because just getting them in can be an issue mm-hmm. um and then I carry just plain water on my back mm-hmm. so that I have have a choice there um but yeah very much every lap every hour have a have a different choice so people just sort of look at me and say oh what do you think about for 24 hours and I'm just thinking about what I'm going to eat next. <laughs> and then I imagine, especially when you're starting off, even things like you just said to me there, you have a bottle on your bike. And I think, oh, when I raced Cape to Cape, I had to use a pack because if I just used a bottle, I don't have the skills to be constantly pulling the bottle out on a technical section. My partner, Jess, was absolutely fine. Like it's doable. But for me, like I just didn't need that extra oh, worry. I'm with you. Mm. Um, and I do, a lot of people don't ride a 24 with a backpack. They'll just change bottles every lap. Um, but I find that I drink more and I am a reasonably heavy sweater. Mm. Um, so having the water and making sure that I keep up is a good thing. And it also means, well, with the, with the two, Dylan keeps a close eye on what I'm drinking. Mm. So again, that comes back to the pit crew. You need to drink more water. You're not, you know, having enough infinite, you need to up your carbs, you know, this other way. Um, so he keeps track of all those things because I do tend to stop drinking as much at nighttime. And some of that will be natural variation, but also just being conscious. I'm still sweating. I'm still working. Um, yeah, that I'm I'm keeping my fluids up. So he tracks all that. How does your body cope after not sleeping as well? Because yeah. <laughs> I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Do most people take like a little nana nap or anything in the middle of it, or not at the top end of the field? Okay. Um. So yeah, if you're trying to be competitive. There's, there's no time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, it is a sport that's open to everybody, even though it sounds daunting. So it is just as many laps as you can do in 24 hours. So if you want to have a break, if you, you know, want to have a sleep and then, you know, split it and make sure that you're awake and functioning the next day, 
it's open to everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's not not a requirement of 24-hour racing that you don't sleep. It's just if you want to do more laps, there's no time to sleep. Yes. So yep. you've chosen to not sleep. Yes. How do you go? Like, what's your recovery like? Uh, it certainly, yeah, <laughs> I feel it for um, probably a couple of weeks afterwards. Wow. Um, the not sleeping, I find it's actually hard for a few nights to get to sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, that post big adventure lack of sleep, it takes me a few few nights to get my rhythm back. Yeah. Um, and I, I know my first one with, with Jodie as my coach, then I sort of said to her, oh, you know, well, when do I start training again? This was before the 24, you know, how long do I need off? You know, what's my recovery? And she just said to me, Emma, your body will tell and you'll know when you're ready. And it was my, to do with my heart rate in terms of when I was exercising, my heart rate was way lower no, than yeah, what it felt. Yeah. And she said, when your heart rate's back to normal, then you can um, yeah, then you can start again with training, but until then, no. And I, yeah, so far I haven't done very well with having a long break afterwards. I keep thinking I'm going to have a whole week off the bike and I haven't actually managed it yet. So I'm always back on the bike by Thursday. And then the last one I did kids coaching the week after. So I was back on the bike with the kids on the Tuesday. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> but the Monday afterwards is definitely as much time on the sofa or even in bed watching TV or reading as I can and just yeah having a pause yes yeah which is sometimes nice in life as well just to give you that excuse for the pause I don't think we always get that yeah it's a good excuse it is yeah (laughs) yeah man I'm even tired after like I get five hours of sleep (laughs) and I guess I mean talking about the sleep your approach from the start was that you weren't going to sleep and you you went for that 24 hour like full out if someone is thinking about getting into 24-hour racing, it doesn't quite have your mentality. I know there are options like, for example, a team that could be yes. a way of getting into it. Do you have any recommendations for anyone who's curious about getting into it? I think if you've got a team and you want to do it as a friend and as, and as a social thing to sort of explore it and feel it, then pick your team well. Mm. Um, pick your pit crew well. And, yeah, definitely there are teams out there having a ball and having a party while they're out there and enjoying that whole atmosphere um depending on your personality and mine is much more the the solo person than the team person out there so my approach is even if I wasn't doing it if I was doing it as a in inverted commas training 24 then I'd probably still do it solo but just I would have a sleep then or I would just pace myself differently take the pressure off um Something tells me I don't think you could do a training <laughs> no, 24. I, I think I, you would go in again like that, like all oh, half Everest and then you do the whole thing. I don't I'm feeling think, some resistance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would not put money that it would be a inverted commas training 24. The deal with my husband was, um, yeah, with Dylan was two 24s a year. And because we felt that that was sustainable and manageable and more than that would get, um, yeah, too draining. This year, if I'd been able to do them all with dates, there would have been three 24s and I was working really hard on convincing him that the middle one was a training 24. Um, Obviously, well, that one did go ahead, um, but my dates clashed and then, yeah, the end of the year didn't. Um, But certainly there are options. So there are teams of four, there are teams of six and, um, yeah, solo at whatever pace you want to do it. And at the last one, yeah, other people from from Toowoomba were there and yeah other women were racing and they're in between and you know hats off to them so they were racing and getting the laps in that they could but then also cooking dinner and sleeping with the kids and you know they had the kids there who were doing the kids races and so they just rode as many laps as they could and figured they may as well enter and get to ride as much as they could but then they still had all the other stuff to do 
So that's a whole new level of um, multitasking. <laughs> that's an awesome way to get yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe when the kids again are self sufficient, then they've kind of already yep, had that aspect exactly. of it as well. So um, that's a nice way to get into it. Yeah, I much prefer the, prefer the solo bit because then it's all about me and I don't have to think about anything other than writing and mm. everybody focuses on me. So, you know, that ego thing coming in, whereas they're there doing it and looking after kids and looking after other people and and making sure that everything else flows smoothly, dealing with whatever crises happens around them at the time. So, yeah, full kudos and would love to see more mums doing it. So, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. It comes back to that community side of things as well. Mm. That's really nice to just get to experience the event in a very different way, but everyone's riding the same track and, yeah, just approaching it however suits you in your stage of life or or stage of competition that you want to. Um, so we talked or touched on briefly there about like a forced pause or a rest after an event. Training for 24-hour racing, you man- you mentioned a heavy um, training load. Mm-hmm. In terms of your body and injury and also this being mountain biking mm-hmm. where crashes do happen, yes. what has been your experience of that? In terms of, I'll split it into two. In terms of the training load, Um, again, I couldn't do the training that I'm doing if I had small kids and full-time work. Um, I managed it with, with just full-time work, but it was definitely tiring and it was juggling and it was things like riding the bike to school and having a second set of everything there and having a shower and getting changed there. Um, getting a trainer bike and then Zwift has made life a lot easier in that it's just in the bedroom and it's easy to go. At the same time, the, the the negative of that is if I do that too much then and don't get out, especially when it's cold and winter and dark, then also there's a skill thing that, mm. that loses. I don't have those innate skills from childhood, so I have to focus on them and keep them a priority too. But, yeah, it's definitely um, just making it work and yeah, things like the garden beds and the weeding um, <laughs> get a little bit forgotten at times and... Again, Dylan's a great support crew at the races. He's also a great support crew at home. So we make it work and we juggle, but it is time-consuming. Um, I would say probably about 12 to 12 hours normally on the bike a week, but that can go up to about 20 hours just before a race. Plus there's the stretching and, you know, I am 48 and all the other things that come into it just to keep the body happy mm. um, so lots of stretching comes in um, there should be a lot of weight training I have been slack with that and I was going to ask if you do <laughs> as well yeah I should do a lot more than I do and I've actually fellow shout out to a fellow podcast guest um, just spoken to Matt Wilkins about taking me on as he a had to mention on yeah. every brilliant episode <laughs> love it as well yeah. you'd be like yep there I am again <laughs> So, yeah, so Matt's obviously been helping you out as well. So just just started. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I know that he's got the endurance background. He's got the strength and conditioning background. Um, so, yeah, adding to my team. So, again, the skills coach, the fitness coach, the strength and conditioning coach um, and the dietitian. So, yeah, it's it makes me feel like an athlete. <laughs> well, you, you sh- are you- an athlete. Totally. <laughs> totally. You shouldn't feel like an athlete. You are an athlete. All right, yeah. I stand corrected. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, so that's that's just happened and he's been great. He understands understands that and understands how it'll fit in with um, Annabeck, who's my fitness coach, and with Dylan Cooper as my skills coach and meshing the three together. So that's, yeah, I'm excited. You do have a bit of a... Um 
coaching thing that it seems like all your coaches retire. So hopefully, <laughs> uh, hopefully yes. you've got a nice stable yes. team now. Yeah, you mentioned in your notes that a couple of the coaches had dropped off yeah, and so, things. Yeah. yeah, so when I started, I started with Jodie Willett, who was originally from southeast Queensland, then moved to Tassie. And so she was great in stretching my um, my thoughts on what far was from sort of three to four hours to 24 hours. And then, yeah, Jodie retired from coaching. Um, and I started with with Jess Douglas, who is a former 24-hour world champion. So, And she was great in, yeah, pushing me further and developing me, um, you know, that bit further to the next level and um, bringing on a slightly different take with, with training. And then Jess retired. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm with Anna Beck now, which has been great. So Anna Beck, yeah, you know, fabulous rider, international rider, fantastic coach. Um, doesn't have a 24-hour background herself, but she's certainly got the training and physiology knowledge to to get me there. Um, yeah, but poor Anna, she's she's taken me on at the time when, as I was saying to you again before, my life has gone a bit chaotic and she's trying to work in a training plan around my um, erratic schedule and changing schedule. And you mentioned there that Jody was the one who kind of pushed you into, you know, what long means, you know, long might be three hours, it might be four, it might be 24. Yep. <laughs> so you've obviously done a couple of these things and you, I'm sure, feel very confident or at least more confident than what you started off on, right? On the yes. bike. How do you think that's played into your everyday life now? Do you feel like you can take on challenges a little bit more and have that more self-confidence in things? I think my everyday life doesn't look anything like what it used to do. Um, so, you know, mountain biking and biking has definitely changed it. But in terms of, yeah, my confidence and perception of things, absolutely. Um, yeah, 48-year-old female. And I think probably one of the biggest things is learning that I can do far more than I ever realised I was capable. You know, I've, and it hasn't been an instant thing. It's been a gradual stretch, stretch, stretch of the boundaries, but pushing them out and realising that actually my body's done everything that I've asked it to do. Um, and so I am, you know, keen to see how far I can stretch those boundaries. And so that's exciting on a personal level. The other thing I think is um, a big change is moving from that perception as, and this is a very female thing, I think, maybe it's just a me thing of, judging my body by what it looks like to judging my body by what it can do. And yeah, that's been a huge mind shift. And as a result of that, my confidence and my self-esteem has skyrocketed. So have you gotten better then about just going, I am an athlete, regardless of what <laughs> I look like? Because it's a hard skill to do and it's a practiced skill. I think I said to Matt when I met him was that his job is to change me from looking like a middle-aged lady to a master's athlete. So maybe I'm still working on it. <laughs> a little bit of development. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, having said that, yeah, just in terms of my inner self-confidence, knowing mm. that I've put my body under these challenging conditions and, and bikepacking, I think, even this year was a real mind shift too in that my body... I was about to say it doesn't look like an athlete's body. Um, so I'll rephrase that. My, I'm not fast. You know, I'm not a super, um, super fast mountain bike racer and what people perhaps perceive a mountain bike racer to be. So recognising that I have my niche and that my body isn't designed for speed. We're definitely type 2 muscle fibres, but... When I was bikepacking, it was hard, it hurt. Getting up in the morning on that second, third, fourth day was 
and getting going was hard, mm-hmm. but it actually felt like it was easing into, and I think you spoke about this in your um, bikepacking summary, yeah. that it eases into it and yeah. it adjusts. And so now I'm curious, well, what if it's six days? What if it's seven days? You know, how will it, how will it cope? Um, and as I say, that yeah, that's um, exciting to think about. Um, Dylan, you didn't hear me talking about six, seven day, but, <laughs> um, but it, it is also, it's a confidence thing and it's a totally different perception. Mm, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, whatever body composition that we have, I think that sometimes can take such a big part of our like mental state of, I'm not an athlete. I don't look like an athlete. I don't look like the person next to me on the starting line. But that's like totally cool. Like, yeah, if you actually doing... took a photo of the starting line. Nobody looks like and anybody else next to them exactly. on the starting line. Exactly. I was going to say that. Like, I mean, we put so much pressure on ourselves to look a certain way because of our perception of that. And like, I know myself. I came from like a sprint background and was a crossfitter. And when I was a crossfitter, I looked different to when I was running 50 kilometers. You know, you're doing different activities, your body responds I, in a different I'm just going to pause you and say sprinting 50 kilometers. To me, that sounds like torture. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I definitely wasn't sprinting that far. <laughs> but it's more just that, yeah, that perception of what, I mean, I don't even know how I should be imagining a 24 hour mountain biker to look, to be honest, you mm. know, and it's, I feel like we see it a lot in trail running that, okay, maybe at the elite end of the field, you've got a skinnier running type, but also there are some incredibly strong and inverted commas women there who are more like sturdy, but like however you want to describe Mm. it, because you have to be strong to manage those off-road conditions, you know? And like you say, you could take a picture of the start line. There's all shapes and sizes essentially that are there. But we build up this image of like, <laughs> yeah. well, we do. this is what I want to look like. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's it's great in the endurance space as well because there's a lot of different body types that can handle mm. these different endurance things too. Um, that it, I, I hope that over time it helps people out to like, no matter what you look like, you can do it, right? Yeah. Everybody's got a biker body, a runner body, whatever it is. And I know that sounds super cliche, but it's just no, because it's so true, it right? It is true. And I feel like as women, or the, maybe this is my like personal experience, but I feel like I'm looking to what I don't have. So like as a, as an endurance trail runner, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not like super slim and tall, but I'm not looking at the fact that I have really strong legs. You know, it's like, yes. I'm just focusing on the stuff I don't have and I want what she has. But And when I go down that path, it's still and again, who says to me, but Emma, you've got mental mm. and you know 90% is mental for this yeah. you need the fitness you need the training but you need yeah you need the stubbornness, the stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we could all use probably a little bit more of that stubbornness so when I guess why do you like doing all this stuff what keeps pulling you back in there because it's not easy yeah I'm a whole range of things I enjoy being outside as I said I enjoy being out in nature I enjoy having a challenge and a goal, as we talked about, mm. something to work towards so that I'm not just exercising for good health. That that doesn't do it for me, much as it's important. Um, I want to exercise for a goal and to meet a challenge. And what I'm finding is that I'm meeting the challenges I'm setting. So I'm setting new challenges. And that's a really exciting adventure um, with myself of just, well, what can I do? What am I actually capable of? Because I've realized I haven't found the limit yet. So I think it's that. Have you had any moments of like epic failure? <laughs> um, uh, oh, we never got onto crashes. Yeah. Other- oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> other than crashes, 
I've I've had one, and that okay. was actually this year at, at Hidden Vale at the Epic. I'd signed up to do the hundred, so it was my second go at the hundred kilometer. Yes, hundred kilometers. Tough. No, it's a hundred kilometers, and it's a tough mountain bike like technical route. Yeah. And yes, so yeah, as I say, it was my second year. I'd done it the year before, and was keen to see if I could beat my time. And for whatever reason, and I can think of, you know, a few things that played into it, I just felt awful. I started off strong, was really having a ball. Um, You know, I could see developments in my skills and that was a big mental boost as I was going through. But, yeah, reached about 40K and just felt ill. And, um, yeah, weak, ill, yuck. And it was a hot day. It was the first hot day. It was in the 30s, sort of high 30s. And again, coming from Stanthorpe, we'd only been in the low 20s. Mm-hmm. So that probably didn't help. Um, but yeah, I, I pulled out at 55K and it was the right decision. And I was totally okay with it being the right decision on the day. And there will be, you know, Hidden Vale Epic 100K next year on my race calendar. Um, but yeah, it was really hard seeing the DNF next to my name. And it was really hard going to bed that night. And seeing everybody else's social media popping up of, you know, it was tough, but I pushed on and, and you know, that's not taking away because it was tough and they did push on and there was some amazing um, feats, but it was really hard going. It was tough and I didn't, um, yeah, I didn't like that. I did. did you take any learnings away from it? Yes. So, so, so it's not a yeah. failure. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and certainly spoke with Anna. Um, both about the mental and the physical side afterwards and and how to improve and what we can work on, uh, what I can work on. And, you know, things like pacing, I was probably feeling, you know, good and feeling strong and just enjoying racing um, after so long of not racing and not many races and probably, yeah, just went a little bit too hard at the beginning on a really hot day when I wasn't heat adapted, maybe didn't eat and drink enough because I was focused and caught up in the moment. So it's, yeah. You've got the, I've got the learnings um, and I knew all those things beforehand, but it doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes. Totally. We all do. And that's <laughs> how you learn. It's all part of the journey. And I, I feel like that's something you can just draw on so much as well in future. Is, I mean, it doesn't sound like you often get to the point where you're like, I want to quit. But it is that thing of I remember what that felt like when I didn't finish and I don't want to do that again. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. It's in, it's an ingrained emotion now from that, mm. that one time and those three little letters next to my name. I did not like that. <laughs> it's better than DNS, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or DFL. Is that... What's that? that? Dun, dun, last? <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Although DFL would still be fine. <laughs> Sometimes we that was pretty struggling. well me on the day. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Now you still haven't gotten to the crashes. I, oh <laughs> yes. Avoiding it's mountain them. biking is a sport that definitely has some crashes. So yeah. yes, as I said at the beginning, I began from basically a skill level of zero. Um, so there have certainly been crashes along the way. It's fairly frequent, um, you know, bruises and scrapes. And if you look closely at the knees and elbows, they're not the same as they were before mountain biking. Um, In terms of more serious crashes, a few injuries along the way. Um, I did break my hand on New Year's Day. Um, That was probably my first bigger injury. I was still living in Toowoomba at the time. I think my New Year's resolution was to not crash as much. Um, So, yeah, that went well. (laughs) What year was that? (laughs) I... 
five years ago. Okay, maybe so six we're not years. blaming you for 2020 or COVID no, permissions or no, anything no, like this, that. This <laughs> early on, so I'm trying to put them in chronological order. Gotcha. Um, so at that time, I was still running, and I remember I had a half cast on, and um, yeah, in Toowoomba, and I was trying to run with the half cast, and um, it was obviously getting really sweaty and revolting. Mm. And they basically just said at the hospital, "We'll just keep coming back, and we'll keep changing it." So I said, okay, thank you. Um, so that worked well for me there. It just kept, again, kept me outdoors, kept me active, kept me doing stuff. Um, the next injury, I think, was a rotator cuff, my left rotator cuff. Um, so that one was at Hidden Vale. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in one of the four-hour events, so riding in a team with Dylan, um, I'm sure it was just skills and, you know, my mistakes and errors on my part, but I think lost the front wheel and tucked it. I had just got some new um, sports glasses. It was the first time I'd tried sports glasses and the prescription, I will stand by my guns on this one, wasn't right. And I did say to them, I feel like I'm looking through a goldfish bowl. And their their sort of comment was, well, just keep right, you know, keep wearing them and you'll get used to it. Well, <laughs> okay. So it could be rider error or could have been those particular glasses, but yeah, definitely didn't end well. I did try to get back on the bike. So that wasn't a DNF, beaten that it was a lap based one and I just didn't do as many laps but did pull out early I did get on to try and finish that lap because I think we would have podiumed if I'd finished um not competitive um I maintain I rode at least 10 meters Dylan says I rode one (laughs) (laughs) and then accepted that it just wasn't going to happen so yeah that was that was that one and that was yeah a long recovery and and hard because I couldn't yeah drive a manual car and drove a manual car at the time as well couldn't lift my arm to change gears and all, and all those sort of things that yeah make life hard. Um, that one I had just moved to Stanthorpe and I just started a new job. So yeah, all those yeah, life things that, that get made a lot more difficult when you're injured. Did break my rib in a race. Again, another front wheel tuck. So yeah, thank you to my skills coaches for moving me on and progressing me through this. <laughs> Progressing um, from hand to shoulder, <laughs> yeah, to say, we're, we're no, progressing through body parts here. <laughs> if you'd seen what they got when they, yeah, you know, started working with me, they've done an amazing job. Um, that was, yeah, lost a, lost a front wheel on a corner and just the handlebar caught my ribs. Um, broke the rib, did finish the race and did race about three weeks later with the broken rib. So broken but I don't think it was a major break or I would have been in a lot more pain Mm. um and I do remember the race that I (laughs) the race that I raced when it was about four or maybe five weeks post it was very much no no I'm not going to race I'm just going to you know go and ride it was chicks in the sticks and I loved that race and I think again getting back to women in the sport it's it's fantastic and I was on the start line and I commented to a friend that my <clears throat> adrenaline had kicked in because my heart rate had just jumped 20 beats per minute and I hadn't moved. And that was when I knew that I wasn't going to just ride it. So, yeah, that was, yeah, with the broken rib. So that one actually wasn't too dis- disabilitating. Is that the word? Debilitating. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then most recently was my broken collarbone, which was, yeah, just a shitty moment really and one that I happened to have a GoPro on that spun around and caught the whole like as I landed and the pain on camera um so that was yeah just overestimated my ability um on a on a tabletop and yet lost the front wheel and came down made the classic mistake of putting hands out um 
yeah, it was just shit. <laughs> so yeah, and to watch of, it all back on camera as well. So not, I did, yeah, I did actually see some bits on camera. I, I, um, I'd been riding with Dylan and a friend, and they were sort of going to go and do some black runs, and I went, oh, you know, I'm not really feeling black runs today. I'll just, and I'd been playing on this tabletop for a little while and felt really comfortable. Just going to stay here and do a few more practices. You go, and I'll be fine. And so I'd set a few cameras up, you know, I'd discover Instagram by then. And, um, yeah, had my phone on the side, so that caught the side view. And, um, yeah, had the GoPro that then caught the, the swung round somehow and caught the face um, and the agony and the guttural animal noises <laughs> at the end. <laughs> and that was probably the hardest bit. Did you hear the crack? Um, no, yeah, but okay. I, I felt the pain. Oh, I did the whole, okay, I'm in one piece, I can wriggle things. Felt the pain and sort of, yeah, went along with my fingers, feeling along my collarbone and there was bone, 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 no bone. Mm. Um, so sort of going, okay, well, I think I've done a collarbone. Um, and, you know, I was quite pragmatic about it. You know, it's a bone, six weeks healing, okay, you know. And I went through all that in my mind, um, so, you know, stuck my arm in my jersey and zipped it up to keep it still and then started packing the van. And, um, yeah, when Dylan and, and Jeff came back, they were sort of like, hang on, Emma's bike's there, Emma's over there, this isn't good. Um, so yeah, had the drive to hospital, but yeah, didn't realize that the public system doesn't like to repair collarbones if it can possibly avoid it. So yeah, had, um, yeah, had a, an interesting introduction to collarbones, but fortunately found a brilliant surgeon, private surgeon in Brisbane and just, um, yeah, felt very comfortable when I walked in and there were pushies boxes in the corner and he just knew, and he understood about endurance racing when he sort of said to me, well, you can't have a plate because you'll have a a pack on and it will um it will rub and annoy you so he did a a lesser used technology where he actually puts a screw inside the bone and screws it back together and pulls it in mm-hmm. um and I, yeah through him and and through the physio who also a mountain biker um yeah um so daryl mears was great there but yeah just um got me right and wouldn't let me go out on trails until i was ready so, yeah, Daryl fully understood what I needed to do and he um, was basically, you have to do this many push-ups before you're allowed out. Mm. He did try to say to me, you have to do push-ups with claps and I pointed out that I couldn't do that before I broke my collarbone. you got to love that. So, <laughs> so he just took it down a level. <laughs> and sometimes coaches in that village that you've got as well are just as important to get you out the door than they are to keep you in the door as yes. well yeah. Yeah, yeah. before you're ready. Yeah. So, yeah, I was lucky to – and, again, it was that whole community thing of other mountain bikers saying, you know, have you thought of this person and this person and this person? And I had the recommendations coming in from other mountain bikers, you know, who'd seen the Instagram post, um, going, okay, this is what you need to do and don't leave it to heal naturally because you will have trouble and you'll have issues and da 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 And I also had a shoulder that was about 10 centimetres lower than the other one. So it really, um, you know, quite literally I struggled to wear a bra because I was so lopsided. Yeah, wow. um, but, yeah, it was basically sent home to heal. Um, so definitely wasn't leaving it. So I from, didn't realize that was a thing that they've tried to do. It. Obviously, you're well because I know have... another mountain biker that's had exactly the same experience. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah and right. heaps of issues after. So, so how yeah. recently was that? Uh, last year. Okay. So mm. you know when we went into our first lockdown, and then they lifted the lockdown that weekend. Yeah, <laughs> and went too hard, too fast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> love it. And so that's your last kind of little injury that yep. you had but Other apart than, from the scratches uh, scratches grazes bruises yes yeah. so that that to me that's just i don't want to say this that's just part of it as long as they're totally. not too serious um but yeah 
definitely um, the serious ones are getting much fewer and further between. Um, that was just me working beyond my limits and definitely being happy to be out and about again and forgetting that I hadn't really ridden single track for a long time. Um, so, yes, have been working quite seriously on my jumping skills. They still need a lot of work, but, yeah, Dylan's uh, Dylan Cooper, not my Dylan, is um, yeah taking me right back step by step and working me through. I just think it's going to be a long, drawn-out process of getting me to do it. But I'm stubborn, so I'll get there. I might just be 58, not 48 when I do. No. <laughs> well, I said off-air as well, but my dad, Andy Russell, he always says, if you're not falling, you're not learning. It was more applicable <laughs> in skiing in that way, but you could take it. Yeah, I'd like to be learning, well. but not falling. Yeah, so. yeah true, true. <laughs> it's hard lessons to learn. <laughs> But yeah, look, it, as I say, coming from a zero skill background, it's certainly been part of the journey. Um, and there have been one or two moments when I've gone, oh, you know, this is just too hard, but they've been very temporary and the lure and the pull is, yeah, is strong. And I think like you mentioned, getting into this later in life, you have taken a very pragmatic approach in terms of getting coaches on board for oh, all of these huge, different things. Yes. and. I mean, there is a level of privilege there being able to have that community as well, but there's no doubt a lot of people start off mountain biking, falling, learning, but you're not actually necessarily learning and there's no harm in bringing a coach in early. Like I'm just such a massive advocate of coaching, mm. but it's that thing of, oh, I'll just ride for a while and get used to it. But if you're doing the wrong thing, you're doing the wrong thing repeatedly. Yes. And that's where bringing a coach on early can really boost your confidence reduce the the injuries and get you going way faster as well oh 100 percent. and even now my last coaching session I had had a big gap just because coach coaching's in Brisbane I'm in Stanthorpe Fife um and it was amazing to me how many little bad habits had snuck back in mm, that I just yeah. wasn't conscious of mm. so that regular someone else watching and definitely filming and watching back helps in between yeah but having another person who knows um, makes a big difference. Yeah, fantastic. I'm conscious of time. I think mm -hmm. ages ago I asked you like what the ideal length of podcast was for Walking Derby, your dog. <laughs> <who> we, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think it was like between 60 and 90 minutes. So we're like heading towards that right now. <laughs> I can't believe it's already been. Yeah, yep. there you go. <laughs> so um, unless there's anything else you would like to add, I'm going to wrap up with our favorite final question. Yeah, look, I... Just a big shout out and a you know a public thank you to everybody who has helped on the way. Um, I would like to thank iRide for their support, and I know that's maybe not as a sponsor, um, but they took me on very early on in my my racing journey. And you know, thank you to the people that made that happen. Um, I was a forty-something female who didn't come from a, a biking background it was you know last or virtually last in every race but they saw something in me and have just been part of my journey ever since so I would like to acknowledge that so thank you I love that community is just so key that's fantastic so I know you're aware of this question because you have listened to um, episodes previously but just for anyone who's new to this I'm going to give a little bit of context so um, I was coaching a group of little girls mountain biking at Sugar Bag Mountain Trails on the Sunshine Coast. They couldn't go the hour session without needing to go to the toilet. And so they mm -hmm. would always ask if they could go for a wild wee. Now, that little term, I think, has just come into vernacular. And I feel like you said yes. you've used it in your coaching as well. <laughs> <I have. laughs> it's <Yeah>. taking over. <laughs> 
You used to use a bush wee, but wild wee just has a nice ring to it. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> so, Emma, can you tell us about your wildest wee? Yes. Well, I'm going to tell you about my most embarrassing wild wees rather than my wildest wild wees. Um, but when I first left uni, I worked in the cotton industry for a couple of years. So you're on laser-leveled flat, flat land, you know, paddocks that stretch as far as the eye can see. And that's fine if you need a wee and you're out there all day when the cotton has reached a certain height. But when it's at a cotyledon stage and it's only a few centimetres tall, there were a few times that no matter how carefully I checked and listened for vehicle noises and looked all the way around, it was when the pans were down that someone appeared. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the joys of um, yeah working in agriculture in the early 1990s. That's Fantastic. <laughs> Strategic. Oh, man. You could look everywhere. You could listen, 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 and then. <laughs> Guaranteed. And then. Yeah. That's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. So good. Well, we've absolutely loved talking to you today, Emma. Thank you so much for your time. If Thank you. If people um, would like to reach out to you or want to like look you up, is there somewhere online that you would suggest? Probably Instagram is the easiest. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lizzie, my daughter, for putting me onto that. Um, so, yeah, Emma Rymer, MTB. Nice. Perfect. Perfect. Thank Thank you you. so much. Thanks, Emma. It's been really fun. Thank you. That was far less stressful than I thought it was going to be. (laughs) (laughs) And Bear, you made it. You might have heard Jolie a couple of times. Good job, mate. (laughs) Just panting. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Into the Wee Hours podcast. To get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Into the Wee Hours podcast or email us at into the wee hours podcast at gmail.com. On Instagram, Sarah is all the gear nay idea, and that is N-A-E for all you non-Scots people, and Kristen is at Kristen Vodden. To read the show notes or to listen on the website, you can visit intothewehours.com forward slash podcast. And to help support this podcast, you can also head over to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash into the wee hours podcast. Happy adventuring and we will talk to you next time.